Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. The past week was a busy one in the national park system. More wolves were moved to Isle Royale National Park, and some of the moose there got radio collars placed on them to make it easier for biologists to track their movements. In Washington, the United States Supreme Court rejected National Park Service authority to regulate rivers that flow through park units in Alaska. Those and other stories can be found on nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I talk prey and predators in Yellowstone National Park with Dr. Dan McNulty, a wildlife researcher from Utah State University who has long been studying prey and predator relationships in that park. Erica Zambello talks birds at Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, and we end with an overview of where you can spot wildflower blooms in the national park system this spring. Yellowstone National Park is one of the wildest national parks in the lower 48. It's believed to have its full complement of species that were present more than 200 years ago when mountain man John Coulter passed through this region. There are bears, both grizzly and black, mountain lions, wolves, moose, elk, wolverines, bobcats, possibly even lynx as well. With such wildlife within its borders, Yellowstone is an incredible setting for wildlife research, both on individual species and how species interact with each other. Today we're visiting with Dr. Dan McNulty, a Utah State University professor who focuses his work on the intersections of species and how they affect their surrounding ecosystem. He's been involved in a long-term collaborative study of wolves and ungulates in Yellowstone. Recently, he co-authored a study that noted the resilience of elk to hold their ground in their home territories, winter and summer, despite the presence of wolves, if possible. We're going to pick his brain a little bit today to get a glimmer of understanding of how all these species interact and survive in the world's oldest national park. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you've been studying wildlife in Yellowstone for, for quite some time now, haven't you? I have. I started as a volunteer field technician for the Park Service in November of 1995, which was the first, the beginning of the first full winter of wolves in Yellowstone following the initial reintroduction. Yeah, that was a, that was a fantastic time. I was uh, working for the Associated Press in, in Wyoming back then and, and covered that uh, re- recovery program pretty closely. Now, is it, is it accurate to describe Yellowstone as perhaps the, the wildest national park in the lower 48 in terms of species that are there that they say that it's got the full complement of species that you know you might have seen 200 years ago Ooh, that is a tough question it depends on uh what you mean by wildness and if you're talking like raw species diversity i doubt it i bet you everglades probably has a greater number of species uh particularly if you consider um you know non-mammals but if you're talking about large mammals and the diversity of large mammal species, then I think you're probably right there. Um, it has the full complement of large carnivores, particularly. And uh, you, know, you also find those, that same complement up in um, Glacier. So, but of course, in, in Yellowstone, you've got a broader, more diverse 
range of ungulate species, larger numbers of ungulates uh, than in glacier. Um, so yeah, it is a very rich area for large mammals, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. No, I was wondering about glacier. I know they don't have bison up there, but in terms of predators, they probably uh, match up with Yellowstone pretty well. They do. Yeah, I think they do. I, I, nothing comes to mind that, um, in fact, they may even have, now you're really testing me here, they might have uh, Fisher, whereas I don't think Yellowstone does. Uh-huh. But of course, both parks have the other Mustelids, Wolverines in particular. Well, I was wondering about wolverines. Um, some years ago, I wrote an article on studies in uh, Grand Teton trying to track wolverines there. And then, of course, when they were talking about the uh, over-snow traffic on, on Sylvan Pass, the question was, were they going through wolverine habitat? And, and could the, the use of 105-millimeter uh, um, artillery shells to clear avalanche paths, could that impact wolverine habitat? And so I'm just wondering, you know, wolverines and, and, and Canada lynx, are, are they present in, in Yellowstone? They sure are. Um, there was a film crew that spotted one walking through Lamar Valley, of all places. And and I have a friend, Nathan Varley, you know, who grew up in the park, worked in the park now. He spotted a wolverine down in the southern Yellowstone uh, not too long ago. Nice. And unfortunately for me, I, I've not spotted one in Yellowstone, and, I, and I've always thought that I would. You know, I spent a lot of time following wolves around and looking at uh, the carcasses of prey that wolves had killed, and I would. I always thought that I might find at least some wolverine sign, a track, a scat, and uh, and I never did. So I, I think, you know, I think that reflects the fact that their numbers are generally low, but they are there. So they are certainly in Yellowstone. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. As I mentioned, you've uh, recently uh, co-authored the paper on elk and, and wolves and, and interaction there. What, what are you working on these days? Well, we're continuing with that work. I mean, the I guess you could describe my work as examining the effects of wolves on both the movements of elk and the distribution, as well as the demography of elk in terms of reproduction and survival. We're looking at both those sort of avenues of effects. And the paper that you described was looking at the effects of wolves on elk movements and the uh, location and configuration of their winter home ranges uh, over a four-year period, 2012 to 2016. Just recently, more well, not as recently as that study. That, that one just came out last week. But back in July, we had another study that came out that was looking at wolf-elk movements, wolf-elk interactions in the earlier period of wolf recovery in the early 2000s, also about a four-year study. And there we were looking at more fine-scale movements, sort of like uh, at the scale of 30 meters. And we were looking at how the movements of elk were timed to the activity schedules of wolves. So what a lot of people don't appreciate is that wolves, like a lot of other animals, have daily activity schedules and they they stick to those schedules. And so wolves, for example, are crepuscular. They're mainly active at dawn and sort of the the morning, mid-morning hours. And then they rest in midday and then they're active again in the evening hours. And surprisingly to many, they're not very active at night. They're almost as inactive at night. And I'm talking between, say, 
8 p.m. and 5 a.m., they're almost as inactive in that period in Yellowstone as they are during midday when they're sort of sacked out under the shade of a tree to, to avoid overheating. So, you know, you see wolves in movies being these, you know, scary nocturnal predators, but as it turns out, their vision is not optimized for nocturnal hunting like it is in a mountain lion or a leopard. Those are truly nocturnal predators. They have eye sockets that are big. They have an ability to see at night that the, the canids don't. And so as a result, wolves, you know, they, they hunt more during the sort of daylight or low light hours than they do in the you know pitch uh, dark hours. And so what that means is that it gives elk an opportunity to use habitats that would otherwise be risky if wolves were active. So for example, elk rely on, you know, they're primarily grazers and they go out into the grasslands to, to feed. And they'll do that actually at night, like between midnight and three or four in the morning, you'll have, we'll have our collared female elk out there in the middle of the grasslands feeding. And it's in those areas that wolves like to hunt them because wolves are cursorial predators, which means that they, they run through the, the herds looking for a, a weak individual to pull down. It might be a small individual, might be a calf, or it could be a, an adult that is ill. But they do that in these flat grasslands that course through the herds and they find what they're looking for. But at night, it's harder for them to do that. And so they, they, they basically you know, rest at night. And, but it's at night that you see those elk going out into the grasslands feeding, and then they'll, they'll, you know, they fill up their rumen, okay, their ruminants. They'll fill up their rumen out there in the grasslands at night, and those elk will come back into the trees in the morning and the midday, and they'll sit and they'll ruminate, and they'll actually digest that grass uh, and during periods when, when the wolves are more active. And so the elk have kind of figured out how to work around the schedule of wolves minimize the risk of predation and so that that was one recent thing that we were looking at looking at these early data from the, the early 2000s and this later work is, is looking at more larger scale movement more at the scale of kilometers half kilometer that um, yeah and, and and anyway so yeah that's that's sort of a brief description of some of the, the more recent work yeah, yeah. We've been talking today with Dr. Dan McNulty, Utah State University professor who um, studies wildlife in Yellowstone, a job that I'm sure many of us would like to have if for no other reason to get out into the park and see some of these magnificent animals. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. 
That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So Dan, I'm curious about wolves. The recovery program in Yellowstone is, is almost a quarter century old. Early on, the, the wolf population jumped up to about 170, and now it's back down, I think, around 100 or so, give or take. Is that, do you think, the carrying capacity, or is there something we need to be concerned about, about the, the recovery program? I don't think it is, it's cause for concern. I, I think that it probably does reflect what might be sort of long-run average of numbers of wolves inside the park. You know, one of the things that folks don't appreciate with wolves in terms of wolf population dynamics is that wolves compete with one another for space. And I'm talking packs will compete with one another for space. And what we found in Northern Yellowstone particularly is that wolf numbers there are self-limiting to the extent that as wolf numbers increased into that sort of early 2000s period, we had more and more instances of wolves killing other wolves. And in fact, the number one source of mortality for wolves inside Yellowstone National Park are other wolves, wolves from rival wolf packs. So they're competing with one another for space. And it isn't necessarily space for food. It's, It's space to protect their offspring because they will actually raid each other's dens and and kill each other's pups. And so they're maintaining this territory to protect uh, their offspring, particularly during that that denning period. And so the numbers of wolves that we're seeing here in Yellowstone now, which has really been hovering around 100 or so for the last several years, I'm going to say since about, say, 2008 or so, I think that probably reflects something of a social carrying capacity as much as it does a carrying capacity related to food supply. Hmm. That's that's pretty interesting. I mean, a a park at 2.2 million acres, um, a large space. How how are wolves and and grizzly bears um, interacting in the park? That's a really interesting question. So we looked at this recently, a graduate student of mine, uh, Amy Italian, who finished. And the question we were asking was whether or not bears, grizzly bears particularly, were influencing the rate at which wolves were killing. In other words, we know bears have a habit of usurping carcasses of prey that wolves have killed. They'll just they'll take it over. And they won't give it up. Right, right. Wasn't there a case, wasn't there a case, excuse me, uh, in, in Glacier some years ago where um, one grizzly did not hibernate, it just followed the wolf packs and then would steal its, uh, the wolf's kill? You know, I did hear about that. I, I, I have to confess, I don't know the details, so I can't totally vouch for it, but I have heard that. I have yeah. heard that story. And we, we haven't seen that in Yellowstone, to, to my knowledge. Um, the question we were asking though is, well, okay, well, if bears are stealing these kills, then that probably means wolves are going to kill faster or more or sooner than they would otherwise if the bear hadn't taken their kill. And um, 
And we actually teamed up with some other researchers in Sweden who were looking at this very same question. In Sweden, they've got wolves and brown bears and moose. And they were wondering the same thing. Like if brown bears in Sweden took over a, a, a wolf killed moose, does that mean the wolves go and um, kill uh, more specifically? And what was really interesting and actually rather surprising is that we found the opposite that when wolves, when a bear took over a wolf-killed carcass, whether it be a moose or an elk, um, it actually slowed down wolves. It reduced their kill rate. So rather than pushing the wolves to go kill again, instead what the wolves did, it created a delay. The wolves just sort of hung out around the bears, essentially waiting for the bears to leave. Then they would feed. And in this Believe it or not, it makes sense if you're a wolf because killing prey, particularly a large prey like a moose or, or an elk, it's extremely dangerous. You know, wolves are commonly injured, sometimes they're even killed uh, by the prey that they're hunting because they're so much bigger than the wolves are. And so rather than take the risk of going and killing again, they just simply hunker down, you know, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll sneak in there and, and you know, pull a quarter off or a piece of the carcass off while the bear isn't looking. And eventually the bear will walk away. It may be, particularly in the summertime, if it's out in the open, the bear will feed and then will go off and bed down in the trees and the wolves will, will then feed. And so, so bears are, were actually uh, reducing the rate rather than increasing it. And that we thought was quite interesting, and particularly seeing it in these two different systems, both Sweden and in Yellowstone. Wow suggested that this wasn't a, uh, a, you know, a unique pattern to either place. It was probably a common feature of the interactions between wolves and bears. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of grizzly bears, you know, there's a the move by the administration to, to delist grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem from the endangered species list. Uh, any, any thoughts on that, on the, the grizzly population and how healthy it is or isn't? My impression, based on... Uh, the work that I've done in Yellowstone and, and the time that I've spent there is that there are a lot of bears, a lot of grizzly bears inside the park. And so my impression is that they, they are not uh, threatened that they, they, there are sufficient numbers to uh, you know continue that population into the foreseeable future. You know, what happens outside the park is really in the hands of the States that manage those bears, if they were to become delisted, uh, they, you know, it goes over to the state management. And, and I think it remains to be seen uh, what that would mean for the future of the bear outside of the park. Because of course, state management typically involves hunting and depending on how that hunt is managed will dictate the fate of bears outside the park. It, it's really as simple as that. Now there's, there's also no doubt that there's been a, there's an increasing amount of conflict uh, between bears and people outside the park as the bear population has has increased and expanded substantially outside and beyond uh, the park boundaries into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So it really is gonna come down to uh, difficult questions about where we wanna have bears and where we don't wanna have bears. It's just really as simple as that in terms of the question that has to be Asked. The answer, I think, is a, is a more challenging one because it, it deals with different people's tolerances for bears and different groups of people have different views and different tolerance levels. And, and that's where the difficulty is. Somehow there has to be a compromise. And 
taking those views about where we want bears and where we don't want them. Yeah, yeah. And of course, as our population grows and, and more and more people um, want to move to these parts of the country, there there are give and takes and trade-offs that have to be made. And the same thing, by the way, Kurt, applies for, for wolves as well. You know, I mean, uh, we're looking at a delisting decision uh, or proposal to delist wolves. Uh, I think that was just recently uh, released by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so we're sort of staring down that same kind of question about delisting, but with wolves. And this one's a nationwide decision, not just with, with Yellowstone wolves, but in the Midwest and in, in places like Utah, where we actually don't even have wolves, they would delist them here, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. We're almost out of time, but uh, one one quick question. Have you followed the Isle Royal situation where they've got a, a growing um, moose population and they just recently have been working on bringing more wolves in to try and get the prey-predator balance back in check? I have. I'm aware of it. I've been sort of following along the news. I think the most recent thing that I heard was that, you know, if they, of course, with the super severe winter that they've had in the Midwest, it's created ice bridges between the island and the mainland. And, I, and the last thing I'd, I'd heard or read was that some of the wolves they reintroduced, maybe just one actually left the island, dispersed back onto the mainland after being trapped, captured on the mainland and brought to the island and decided they wanted to go home. Yeah, j- just recently they um, they trapped, I think, seven Canadian wolves and, and just moved them to the island. So um, there, there's definitely going to be some interesting dynamics between all the different wolves that they brought in from the different packs. And, and there was uh, two old wolves that had been there for a long time. And how they all get along with one another and, and how the moose react to them is, is definitely going to be an interesting experiment. But I, I wonder, it always, always comes down to, in this type of situation, does Isle Royale turn into an open air zoo where the park service has to manage it to, you know, keep the moose population in check and bring in more wolves to get better genetics or more animals. Well, I, you know, that's essentially what's happening right now. That's why they're doing the reintroduction is to essentially rescue that population. I think we, I think there's a broader question that underlies question you just asked, which is, you know, how important or how necessary is management in national parks, wilderness areas, et cetera. And I would say that increasingly it is important and whether we like it or not, management is, is occurring. I mean, for example, just going back to elk and wolves in Yellowstone, you'd be hard pressed to make the argument that you know, we don't have the fingerprints of management and humans all over that system. You know, we re- we eliminated wolves in the 20s. We reintroduced them in the 90s. Uh, that's all management. The elk population, that northern Yellowstone elk population, it's migratory. It leaves the park in the wintertime, partly, and it's hunted. And it has been hunted since Europeans showed up on the scene, Euro-Americans in the late 1870s. You know, that that... That has not been an unmanaged herd. And so I guess I'm of the view that, you know, there's more management going on out there than many people realize. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm afraid we have to leave it uh, there. We've been talking with Dr. Dan McNulty, a Utah State University professor who focuses uh, his studies on wildlife, prey, and predator relationships, um, primarily in Yellowstone National Park. Dan, I really appreciate your time today. Hey, my pleasure, Kurt. Thanks for speaking with me.
Washington state is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Hi everyone, my name is Erica Zambello and I'm sitting down with Doug Hitchcox, the naturalist at Maine Audubon, to talk about Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument and the upcoming spring migration there. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So how did you first get into birding? Are you from Maine originally? You know, how did you trace your path to, to Maine Audubon? Yeah, I, I'm i from Maine. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Hollis, uh, out near like Buxton, Standish, uh, the Bonnie Eagle School District, as most people will pick it up by. Um, stayed in Maine, went to University of Maine at Orono. Um, Kind of took a, a weird route to Maine Audubon. I was a, a business major, which usually surprises people. Um, but uh, have you know, long had a passion for the outdoors and nature, and it was actually uh, kind of through photography and, and photographing birds that I that I fell in love with them, and then just uh, had more and more questions about birds that needed to be answered. And uh, <laughs> long story short, of have now been the naturalist going on uh, five years. Wow. So I have to ask from one birder to another, do you keep a life list? How do you keep track of the different species that you've seen? Yeah, I was uh, very fortunate early on in my birding to find um, a website called eBird. It's a citizen science project uh, that's run by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Uh, it's really a, a worldwide database where they um, ask people to submit checklists of what birds they see, when and where, uh, and that helps populate maps, uh, really showing uh, range distributions all over the world. And the, the nice thing that it, it gives back to you beyond all these cool maps and bar charts and things is that it keeps track of all your lists for you. So tell you your life list or how many birds you've seen in the state, how many birds you've seen, you know, it, it keeps track of how many birds I've seen right here at Maine Audubon's headquarters at, at Gilson Farm. So, uh, yeah, and, and I'd, I'd guess that, uh, that's part of what drew me to birding. I've always been a, a collector of things. I had 
coin collections, stamp collections, um, a weird phase in my life when I was collecting shoes. And, and uh, so this idea of, you know, essentially collecting, collecting birds, collecting bird names on a list uh, really appealed to me. Yeah, I've had eBird for a few years, but they finally released the app version. Um, and last year I got super obsessed with it. And I used to keep all my observations in an Excel spreadsheet. And now I have no need for that, exactly like you said, because eBird, I mean, I got really obsessed with eBird. Every time I went outside, I would essentially turn it on so that I could record my observations. And I'm not quite that obsessed right now, but it's been an amazing tool to keep track of my observations. Yeah, and with spring migration around the corner, it's a good time to get obsessed again. And, and maybe worth, you know, making that uh, the point that, you know, so many people were like you, they, they kind of kept their own lists. Um, you know, I've got stacks of notebooks, you know, little notepads that I would write down what birds I was seeing. And, uh, you know, kudos to Cornell to realize that, you know, there's great data being collected all over the world. And, you know, those notebooks are probably just going to live in a sock drawer somewhere, but uh, why not create a database that everyone can contribute to? And it's it's so easy, especially with that app that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. So Katahdin Woods and Waters is a new national monument that was established in 2016. It's one of the newest sites in the national park system. It's in the Maine North Woods. It's very rural. It is close to uh, Baxter State Park, which is you know, very popular. But what has the establishment of that national monument meant for some of Maine's iconic bird species? Yeah, from the from the birds perspective, it's uh, kind of great conservation of important breeding habitat. Um, when you look at uh, especially some of the habitats that a lot of our uh, a lot of the birds that come to Maine to breed, um, they're especially looking for boreal habitat, and that's a lot of the you know, the brightly colored warblers, vireos, tanagers, things that people, you know, really love to see, um, you know, they're looking for uh, some very specific habitat types and, and the boreal forest really um, uh, hosts a lot of those species. So by preserving that area um, that falls in Katahdin Woods and Waters, that's really going to kind of help ensure that these birds have, a, a you know, this important breeding uh, site for years to come. And how important is the Maine Northwoods in general to breeding birds in North America? And of course, the, the monument is part of, of this greater Maine Northwoods area. Yeah, so if we look at it from a, a U.S. perspective, United States, um, Maine actually has one of the largest chunks of boreal habitat. So the, that whole North Maine Woods um, is really uh, what we've got. Of course, if we start including Canada, um, you know, it's just a, a piece of a larger puzzle. But in terms of, um, you know, what we're able to conserve, and especially where it's on kind of the boundary, it, it tends to be the, the southernmost or maybe southeasternmost uh, uh, habitat for a lot of these species. We really want to help maintain those edges so that um, it's not kind of, you know, collapsing in from, from the outside. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you've had a chance to travel there. It's a very large park. Are there any areas that you particularly like to bird in? Um, that's like picking a, a favorite child, I guess. Um, you know, the the cool thing up there is um, really 
it's almost anywhere you go, especially because uh, so many of those areas are going to have a pretty good diversity of species. Um, and, you know, what's so neat is just seeing some of those birds doing uh, different behaviors or, or, you know, acting differently than we see them, you know, in southern Maine. Like I, coming up in May, I'm going to be leading, uh, we do this every, every year, we lead two weeks of free walks at Evergreen Cemetery in Portland. And it's really to take advantage of the migrating birds coming back, you know, finding these green areas in an otherwise large gray city. And, you know, for some of these birds, like bay-breasted warbler, uh, blackburnian warblers, like, you know, people lose their minds when we, you know, we're just catching glimpses of them in the treetops. And you can go up to Katahdin Woods and Waters, you know, throughout the summer, and you're going to see those birds, you know, singing. They'll even sing what we call alternate songs on the breeding grounds. They're going to be doing, you know, these funky breeding behaviors, even coming, you know, down to eye level so you can actually see the birds. Um, another great one are, are things like chimney swifts, which, um, as the name implies, like they've they've started nesting in um, man-made dwellings, especially in, in chimneys. Um, they love, you know, big hollowed out areas. They'll, they'll build these uh, weird little nests kind of on the, uh, on the inside of any hollowed out um, uh, kind of dwelling like that. And uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters and, and really the North Main uh, Woods where you have, you know, these large, you know, old, especially, you know, old dead trees that are allowed to stay on the landscape and they're going to, you know, eventually kind of rot out and hollow out. And you can actually see things like chimney swifts, which again, we always associate them with, you know, man-made dwellings. Um, you actually get to see them nesting uh, where they naturally would be. So for people who don't know, because I had no idea before I got into birding in my 20s, what is a warbler? Yeah, um, warblers, uh, without getting too technical, um, you know, we can define them based on the number of primaries they have, the number of flight feathers. But uh, you can think of warblers as uh, songbirds. Um, most of them are just, you know, probably five, five and a half inches long. Um, they're generally all migratory in Maine. Um, a lot of them are going to be migrating south to uh, central, northern part of South America. A bunch of them go out to the, the West Indies. And uh, they're often described as the gems of the North American forest. They are just um, this amazing uh, you know, color swath of just great, beautiful colors from yellows, greens, blues. Um, you know, reds, chestnuts, uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you see photos of them and you, you think that they would belong somewhere like the tropics. And it, it often surprises people that we have them, uh, nesting in Maine. I remember uh, the, the first one I ever saw was a Northern Perula, which mm. if you guys do not know what that is, Google it, you won't regret it. It's bright blue, bright yellow, bright orange. It looks just like a Crayola box basically became a bird. And I couldn't believe these birds had come up to Maine every summer, you know, for the entire time I lived there, but I had never seen one until I was looking for it. So it's great that Katahdin Woods and Waters can provide such awesome breeding habitat for these really beautiful birds. 
Yeah, and that's a, a great species to be on the lookout for up there. Um, it, it's almost, uh, warbler is kind of a bad name for them because most of them don't warble. Um, their, their songs are these, you know, the beautiful like trills and, you know, little series of notes. And Northern Perula has a very distinctive song. It kind of sounds like it's going zzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
what would be your current favorite bird to see in Katahdin Woods and Waters? Well, it's a bird, there's a bird up there that um, I just never see enough. And it's actually become, it's a big target for people in Maine. Um, some people might laugh when I say this, you know, especially in the context of beautiful warblers and all these neotropic migrants coming up, but uh, spruce grouse, uh, which uh, most Mainers know are grouse as partridge. Um, usually they're referring to rough grouse, which we have across the state, but spruce grouse is a, a similar looking species. They tend to be um, fairly tame. Uh, they're not hunted in the state, so that's one reason people think they, they tend to be more tolerant of people. Um, and especially for, for birders traveling, you know, to Maine, uh, you know, for vacation or a birding trip or whatever, that tends to be a good target for them. Um, they're hard to see other places. So uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters um, is, is a place that <laughs> they're never an easy species to see, but um, they're a lot easier to see there than, than many other places in the state. And for those, you know, listening along on their phones or their radios, I believe that spruce grouse are about the size of a chicken, a little smaller. They're slate gray, but don't they also have bright red eyebrows? Yeah. Um, and especially the, the males kind of will really show off that, that bright red, the, the females want to blend in with the, the ground as much as they can. But, um, yeah, the, the males are, they're really quite stunning birds and, and calling them like, uh, chickens or chicken size is, is perfect. They are kind of the, if Maine had a, a native chicken, um, that would be the grouse. Well, that's, that will be my choice too, because I absolutely love spruce grouse. And so um, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk with us about birds in one of our newest national park, national monuments, I should say. And if anyone uh, is interested in birding in Katahdin Woods and Waters or in Maine in general, they should check out maineaudubon.org. Thank you so much. Thank you, my pleasure. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. Delicate trilliums, glorious columbines, and flamboyant redbuds 
are some of the harbingers of spring found out across the national park system. This is a favorite season for birds, bees, and photographers. Wildlife is more easily seen in spring in many parks as well. That makes the coming three months idyllic for exploring the national parks. Yet for those who marvel at the kaleidoscope of colors and hues that wildflowers spread across the park system, this season is unmatched. Winter's snowmelt and the warming sun coax perennials back to life, brightening hillsides, meadows, and even forest floors. Take the trillium, for example. Though there are more than three dozen trillium species in North America, common to all these perennials is their favorite habitat. Partial shade and rich, moist, well-drained soil. Many units of the park system, from coast to coast, have just what they need. You can find large, descriptively named white trilliums in the hollows of Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. There are patches of yellow trillium that cluster in the river bottoms of Big South Fork National River and Recreation Area on the Kentucky-Tennessee border, and clumps of giant trillium climb the wooded slopes of Redwood National and State Parks in California. Check these parks' websites to find out when they might be blooming. They can start in February in Redwood National Park and finish up in May in Big South Fork. Are you desperate for redbuds? They can be found in the east at Great Smoky Mountains, Shenandoah, and along the Blue Stone National Scenic River in West Virginia. They're also common at Gateway Arch National Park in St. Louis and along the Arch Rock Entrance Road to Yosemite National Park in California, where they bloom in April. Of course, wildflowers that bloom in the higher elevation parks of the west typically show up later than those in the east and the midwest, so there's no need to immediately jump into your vehicle and go in search of a wildflower bloom. Many wildflowers can be found throughout the summer and even into the fall in some parks. For example, meadows are covered with cushion flocks, kittentails, and aspen bluebells at Cedar Breaks National Monument in Utah, but they don't draw much attention before July due to the comparatively late bloom. Along the Cub Lake Trail in Rocky Mountain National Park, there are roughly 80 species of wildflowers, among them blue chiming bells and violet shooting stars. However, they usually don't start blooming until July. Where can you find those oddly shaped and brightly red-colored snow plants? Often they sprout above the forest floors of Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and Yosemite National Parks in California, but not before late May and early June. Another late bloomer is that distinctive beargrass, which blooms in Glacier National Park, but usually not before June. And beargrass blooms don't materialize every year, which can make them particularly difficult to find. These stalks with their showy blooms need just the right amount of rainfall and soil moisture to sprout. But once they do, they can rise more than four feet above the soil. Now, if you need help identifying wildflowers, consider attending one of the annual spring wildflower festivals. At Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the 69th Spring Wildflower Pilgrimage is set for April 24th through the 27th. Up in Shenandoah National Park, the 33rd Annual Wildflower Weekend is set for May 11th and 12th. And in West Virginia, at New River Gorge National River, the Wildflower Weekend is set for April 26th, 27th, and 28th. Now, which national parks claim the best blooms in spring? Here are some candidates to check out. Great Smoky Mountains National Park boasts 1,500 species of flowering plants, more than any other national park, so your odds of finding some spectacular blooms are pretty good at Great Smoky. At Shenandoah National Park, it claims nearly 900 wildflower species, among them bloodroot, which starts to push its way up through the forest duff in late March. 
Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming typically sees a riot of glacier lilies in the North Fork of Cascade Canyon and yellow carpets of balsam arrowroot on valley floors. In Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, you'll find fringed gentians and ladies' tresses in geyser basins and yellow bells high up on Dunraven Pass. Visit Arches and Canyonlands National Parks in Utah, and you'll see colorful bursts of Indian paintbrush all over the landscape. At Saguaro National Park in Arizona, it draws kudos for its April wildflower displays, a time of year when the cactus forest blooms in yellows, reds, oranges, blues, and purples, all thanks to its barrel and prickly pear cacti, octillo, and brittle brush, just to name a few of the colorful plant blooms you'll find there. At Mount Rainier National Park in Washington State, you'll see various hues from lupins, broadleaf arnica, and American bistort, which will distract your eyes from the mountain. Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas is home to more than 500 plant species, including prairie larkspur, four types of sunflower, blue wild indigo, and fire on the mountain. Redwood National and State Parks back in California harbors the Calypso orchid in its conifer forests, though it's rare and can be difficult to spot. More commonly seen there are Columbia lilies, giant blazing star, and sea fig. There you have it, travelers. Plenty of park destinations to revel in wildflowers this spring and summer. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.